Morning, church. Happy June to all of you. Gorgeous day. It's been a great week. Hope you're doing something fun as we begin almost summer of this week together. This series, introduced by that video, is really about the importance this month, the month of June, the importance of discipleship in the family. That's what we're going to talk about for the next month. What is discipleship look like in the family, and what part do we have to play? Because sometimes you could hear someone say, oh, boop, I don't have kids, I'm checking out, right? Or my kids are gone, I'm checking out. But really we're talking about not only what is discipleship in the family, okay, but what is our part in discipleship of the family. And I would say to you over the course of these weeks that every single person in this church, let me give you the end from the beginning, has a role to play, or an opportunity, even as that video said, to play in the families of this church. Now, a couple things. The church in the home, as you look at the scriptures, as we're going to do this morning and these weeks, um, are the primary places, the entities God has positioned to have influence in society. This is it. You read carefully the New Testament. The two agencies that God has created, entities that God has created, to have influence through which God influences the world is the church, where we're sitting here today in a manner of speaking, this is a local church, and the family. But today, I think I don't have to spend a lot of time, both of these entities are kind of at a crossroads in our culture. The church is losing its influence. I'm not saying this one, although it could be this one too, but I mean, if you read broadly about the church, okay, Bible-believing churches like this one, people going to them, capturing the imagination of the next generation, of young people, etc. The church overall in America, not just America, is losing its influence. Okay? That's undeniable. And the home for the most part, maybe not yours, I hope not yours, is losing its heart. What do I mean by that? Homes over the course, and Christian homes as well, no exception, are becoming more fractured, more, uh, uh, more distracted, busier than they have been in the past. And we would say the church is losing its influence and the home, to some degree, is losing its heart. But it's the church and the home primarily that God has given to disciple, develop young people to, um, in their faith. Okay? Moreover, okay, the church is losing its influence, the home is losing its heart. We need to think, perhaps more than ever right, in our day, 2023, how the church partners with family to do discipleship. That's what we want to talk about over the next four weeks. The vision, okay, in so many words. Two combined influences make a greater impact than just two influences, right? I mean, there's people that are working very, very hard at the church. We just mentioned it, BNC Hall. People working very, very hard, some of you, with your kids, your students at home, right? Two influences. But they are better together, right? We have to work together all the more in a culture, in a world that is um, unraveling when it comes to the ways of God, the things of God 
the purposes of God. So what we want to do in the next four weeks is let me give you this, this series in a quick outline. Number one, this morning I want to talk about, the, well, there's two influences. One is the church. I want to talk about a church of, in, what is the church's role in discipling? kids. It's all of us. Second, we want to talk about a home of influence. That's next Sunday. What is the parents, in a manner of speaking, their responsibility? The third week we want to talk about, I think the title of the message is um, A Church for Today. And particularly there we want to talk about students. I'm talking about junior high and high school students. They should not be seen as in waiting to get involved in the life of the church. They should be in the church today. Right? They need to be centrally involved in students, especially high school students, in every area of the church. This fast, they're going to be uh, running the world right? <laughs> in leadership places. They need to be in the church today. And last, as I said a few minutes ago, the last message is about family church. That is to say that every single one of us could be praying, could be serving. Every one of us has a role, wherever you are. Have kids, don't have kids, doesn't make any difference. All of us have a role in the discipleship of children. So this morning, my task in the next few minutes is a church of influence. What is the church's role? Familiar passage of scripture, Matthew 5, 11 through 16. Follow along as I read, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are, speaking to his disciples, the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put everyone, excuse me, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A church of influence, okay? It's interesting, Jesus said these words, right? For there ever was a church, of course, right? This is just Jesus getting going. But a church of influence is a church where Jesus is exalted. Okay? A church of influence is a church where Jesus is exalted. Think about these words for a minute. If you can back up. Many of you are familiar with them anyway, the Sermon on the Mount. These are pretty bold words for Jesus to say in his day. Okay? He's saying this you know, to, let's say, the first two or three rows right here. I mean, it's a, it's a small group of people. Didn't go to Harvard. They weren't super smart. They were up in Galilee. I mean, this was, this was a, a very humble beginning. And Jesus doesn't just say, geez, I hope you guys uh, can, can do, let's, let's do something interesting in Galilee. He says, you are the light of the world, right? You are the salt of the earth. That's a pretty, you know, bold, unbelievably a uh, wild thing to say, not only in his day, but even when this book was written, I'm talking about the Gospel of Matthew, 25 years later, whatever it was, even by then, the church was very small when re people are reading this. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ wasn't, didn't really have any significant numbers probably for a couple hundred years. So you say to yourself, well, what is Jesus talking about here, right? The church, 
Well, how could he be saying to this group of people, how could I be saying to you, you are the light of the world? Well, the church, think about even in our own day. Forget about you know, how wild it would be to say that in Jesus' day, how wild it would be to say that in Matthew's day when this book is written. Even in our own day today, yes, the church is on seven continents. It's, it's a different day 2,000 years later. But we all know the church, right? I just got done saying the church is losing its influence. The church is flawed, right? I mean, if I went to, you know, uh, Eastview Mall and asked people randomly on the street, what do you think about the church? A lot of negative things would come up. A lot of scandals, a lot of difficulties, a lot of conflicts. The church, even though it's large today, in a manner of speaking, it's flawed. Why is the church flawed? It's not that difficult. Because the people running the church and the people going to the church are flawed. Okay? It's ne- so how is it possible that we are the light of the world? Well, we're the light of the world, very important, only in a secondary sense, right? We are the church as a window to Jesus. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life, right? So we are the church only in a, in a sense, a derivative sense. It is only as the church genuinely proclaims Christ as Lord a church where Jesus is exalted, by manifesting his life in her life, can we be called, said to be, the light of the world? Here's my point. The church exists to show the world who Jesus is. Full stop. That's really the purpose of the church. The church exists for one reason, really. To show the world, the community that we live in, the people where you hang out, to show them who Jesus is. Everything we do should support this one aim. And anything that we're doing that doesn't support that aim, we should stop doing it. Okay? This is the purpose of the church. In 2001, between 2001 and 2015, some of you know this, many of you perhaps don't, a study was done, the study was called the National Study of Youth and Religion. It was a massive study done with young people between the ages of 13 and 24, done out of the University of Notre Dame by a series of of scholars and, and Christian sociologists. The name most associated with it is Christian Smith. Still, still a professor, I believe, at, at Notre Dame. But they, they wanted to know what do students believe. Many of these people, as I just got saying, now they're mature adults. Or some of them have families, right? Because this is done 2001 to 2015. Started almost 20 years ago. What do they believe? What are their religious beliefs? Now, some of these people that they interviewed, these students, of course, were non-church going. But many of them were from churches like this one. And they came up with this term. Some of you have heard of it. Many of you haven't. How do they summarize what they learned from this massive study of young people between the ages of 13 and 24? And they said, if we had to, cla- to, to, to summarize the belief system of these young people, they came up with this crazy phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. 
Now, many of you have not heard this term, but there's been many books in the last 10 years that have been written about what is called now, you've hear this, you'll hear this term, at least in these books and in conferences, moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me unpack it for you very, very quickly. Number one, they said they're thinking of these young people. It's moralistic. They said when it comes to religious beliefs that, you know, the goal of life is to live, is to be a good person. To be a good person, you need to live a moral life. Okay? Not so bad on its surface. But is that what the Bible teaches? Therapeutic therapy has replaced the idea of what we call repentance. If I'm looking for change in my life, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in this game together. Christ in our life bringing about change in our mind, in our hearts, in our behaviors. We used to call this, or the Bible calls this, the process of sanctification. It's, all, it's mediated through what the Bible calls repentance. But see, now it's become, in our day, or according to this study, it's more about therapy instead of repentance. And then deism. It's very important. Some of you know this word, some of you don't. But deism is theism. People who are deists, so to speak, believe in God, believe God created the world, but they believe in a God that is not involved in your personal life. He's sort of the distant God. He's not involved in your personal life. He's not involved in the affairs of the world. So you believe in him. He did create the world but you're on your own, okay? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here are the five quick tenets of this, of this belief system, best uh, articulated by this study. God exists, he ordered the world, and he watches over human life. So far, so good. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, Good people go to heaven when you die. Outside of the first one, the rest of those, the last four, are not grounded in the scriptures. Really, okay? Of course God wants people to be good, nice, and fair, but that's, he wants you to be like Christ. Right? The central goal of life is not to be happy and feel good about yourself. The central goal of life is to, be, is to, is to glorify God and to serve him. I mean, I'm talking about from the scripture standpoint. These are, this is a question about religious beliefs. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life. Oh my goodness. That's the whole point of the Christian life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And good people go to heaven when they die. That's not just a little knock a, a few degrees off of what the Bible says. It's 100% contrary to what the Bible says. In fact, if you look at the Bible, the irony, we talked about this last Sunday. A lot of people that should have got it didn't, religious people. And the people that ended up following Jesus were the people who were on the margins of society. They were mostly the non-good people, right, that got it. So this is, this is where we find it. There, there's a great deal, here's the point. There's a great deal of stake if our students and kids are walking away from churches, even ones like this one, without a concept of God that captures their imaginations. We need to show them. What does it mean to be a church of influence? The God of wonder, the God of mystery, the God of power, a God who is too big for them to define, yet who has proven through time that he loves them intimately. Let me ask you, don't raise your hand if you are a student in this room. Okay? Do you believe in a God that is so big that you can't define him? Does he inspire wonder in you? Jesus Christ. Does he inspire a sense of mystery in you? Have you experienced the power of God in your life? And let me ask you this. 
parents, because your kids are taking their cue primarily from you, do you still have the wonder of God in your life? Do you have a sense of God, uh, about God in your life? Is there a sense of deep mystery? Are you experiencing the power of God in your life as a daily experience, right? Because if you aren't, it's likely your kids will struggle with it as well. Near the end of his life, Jesus said these words. You're familiar with them. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. A church of influence is, is a church where Jesus is exalted. Now, when Jesus said those words, John chapter 12, he, he was obviously talking about being literally lifted up on a cross. When I... When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, here's the interesting thing about that passage. The crucifixion of Jesus, there was not a mad rush of people to follow him. Okay? Some did. Fifty days later, the day of Pentecost, the church was 120 people. Okay? And over the next 200 years, the church grew modestly perhaps into the tens of thousands. So what was Jesus talking about? He wasn't sim simply talking about the moments, the hours he hung on a cross. He's talking about the whole history of the church. This is the purpose of the church. If I be lifted up, if I am exalted, what do I mean, that? What do I mean by that? The, the work, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Who is he? What did he do? He is the son of God. He is God the son. Is he is exalted. okay. He will draw all people to himself. Okay? He knew the nature of a forgiving Christ on a cross, God did, would compel people to follow him, people to give their lives for him. As long as the church is an effective platform, here's the point, to shine a light on the sacrifice of Jesus, if he is exalted, the church will be even in this day, irresistible because there's nothing else like it. A God who came into the world to bear your sins, to bear my sins, who, who, who took a bullet for you because he loved you, okay? It will be irresistible. But if the church moves from that, if the church decides to exalt something else, if the church gets in, the, in some other business than exalting Jesus, then the church will become not irresistible, but irrelevant. Okay? And that's the, that's the challenge that we have. These ideas, moralistic, therapeutic deism, okay, it came as much from the church as it did from the culture. Okay? This is the problem. C.S. Lewis, his words were written you know, close to 80 years ago. The church exists for nothing but to draw men and women into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Think about this, students, if you're a student. Do you see that's the whole purpose of the church? To make you into a little Christ. Church isn't here just to, you know, give you something to do between X and Y time. The church isn't here to make you a, a better person. The church isn't here to help you, you know, get into college. It's to make you into a little Christ. It is someone who is Christ-like with that kind of wisdom, that kind of depth, that kind of strength, that kind of compassion. 
And the same goes, of course, for all of us moms and dads in the room as well. Your best efforts, moms and dads, ought to be moved towards helping your kids become a little Christ. Is that the fruit of all your investments? And the most important investment, of course, you can make towards that end is your own spiritual walk with Jesus, which is what we'll talk about next week, a home of influence. So a church of influence is a church where Jesus is exalted. That's our job. That's our job as a church. Second, a church of influence is a church that courageously speaks the truth in love. These two images, this is why I chose this passage, courageously speaks the truth in love. That's what Jesus is even doing here. But these two images, they're so familiar that we, you know, they say, if, you know, familiarity breeds contempt or whatever. Or, you know, we, we, we're so familiar with, this, with these images that we forgot what they mean. But really, they're basically, they're, they're, they're two images basically saying the same thing, Right? Two images that are basically talking about the dual role of the church in society and culture. Remember, this is a serious passage. I read verse 11 saying, listen, blessed are you. Jesus is talking, even the church doesn't even exist yet. These, these men and women don't even know what they're going to get into. The day's going to come where they're going to persecute you, falsely say all kinds of things against you. In other words, this is going to get difficult because the world is organized against God and I'm trying to bring an organization, the church and the home, to influence it in a different way. So prepare yourselves. That's what he's trying to say. That's what these two images are talking about. They're talking about the dual role of the church. What do I mean by that? This is so common sense, but we miss it. Salt heightens flavor. It also slows decay. Okay? Light dispels darkness. It also exposes things that are hidden. It is a positive, you might say, and a negative role. The church, as the church strives to be faithful to its calling... It's going to be both compelling and countercultural, right? It's not just one. If we create a church that's just, we want to do everything we can do to make you feel good about yourself. We want to do everything we can do to make you feel good, to hear just the positive aspects that God loves you, which is absolutely true. But we don't want to confront anything going on in, our, in your life, anything that's going on in our culture. We will lose our power as a church, okay? It's salt and light. We as a church need to regularly, spiritually get stronger and toughen up. That's why Jesus adds this verse, right? Before he gets to these two amazing images, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. But he says, first, blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of horrible things about you. Right? That's not just for you and students that are going to school today. Right? People are trying to stand up for their faith. Church needs to toughen up. But what do I mean by that? It's not about having a stronger opinion. It's about having a stronger faith. See, so this is where we, we've, we've gotten wrong in our, in our hyper-divided culture. Overly everything's overly politicized. It's all about having a stronger opinion. It's all about, you know, one-upping somebody. But what I'm talking about here, what Jesus is talking about here, a church that courageously speaks the truth in love is one that doesn't have a strong opinion only, right? It's someone who has a strong faith. A strong faith. 
1 Peter 3. Listen to these words. You can see that he's talking about persecution as Jesus was. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Peter's writing to a culture that in some ways was different than the one most of us grew up in, but it's becoming more and more like the one we are living in, which is the one that's becoming more openly anti-Christian. Okay? Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, he's saying, listen, things are going to come your way even if, whether you like it or not. Do, um, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Okay? Don't, be, don't, shut, don't shut up when you have to. Don't, 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 don't be uh, uh, feared into silence for your faith. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is the key. This is, a, this, this is what discipleship is about. This is what, you know, what we're talking about, families as well as adults. Revere Christ as Lord. Right? That's the key. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the... Uh, 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 to give you a reason for the hope that you have. You're out there in the world. But do this with gentleness and respect, right? It's not an argument. It's not a wrestling match. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior, right, they will do that. In Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You are not going to do that. You're not going to be cool under fire. You're not going to be able to winsomely talk about your faith in Jesus, why you, your marriage runs this way, why you spend your money this way, why you do or don't do this or that thing, why you do what you do. You're not going to be able to do that in a thoughtful, careful, winsome way if Christ is not revered as Lord in your heart, unless you, unless you truly have a faith that is grounded and is getting stronger and stronger as you go on, okay? That's what discipleship's about. That's what your kids need. That's what we all need. A church, here's the point, that adapts itself to a secular world around it and its values, a church that says, we're under pressure, we don't want to lose our influence, let's affirm this, let's affirm that, let's affir we think we're doing this out of compassion. You with me? But a church that adapts itself to the secular culture such that its distinctive calling is lost, right? It blends in, has rendered itself useless in showing the world the truth of God's love. I would stand to, to say to, to us that if we've lost, if the church is losing its influence, it's as ironic, it seems counterintuitive in a sense, it's not because we're not accommodating ourselves enough to the culture, it's because we're over-accommodating ourselves. Because listen, what 17-year-olds, they're not stupid. Right? They, 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 can, they, can, they can sniff out the truth when, they, when, they, when they're near it. They know what their heart of hearts needs. Okay? And what they don't need is a compromised gospel. They need the truth in love. There are pressures all around us. And in us not to be too Christian, not to take our faith too seriously, to relax the war within us with what is offensive in us and in our community. But if we desire to be a church that reaches and disciples the next generation, we will need even more to be a church that courageously speaks the truth in love from this pulpit, in our small groups, in our workplaces, in our gyms, 
everywhere. Okay? Everywhere. But you can't do that because you make a decision to do that. You have to revere Christ as Lord. You have to, your faith has to become strong. You need to spiritually toughen up. This is what discipleship's about. In the church, in the home. That's what we're talking about. If we really want to be a church of influence. Lastly, a church with a mission big enough. A church of influence is a church with a mission big enough to give your life to. Right? That's what, that, that's, that's what we all need. But that's what your 7-year-old and your 17-year-old, they need to come to church not only on one Sunday and realize that the gospel, the mission, the purpose of God is not just some thing to add to your resume. It's not just something to keep you out of trouble. It's a mission big enough to give your life to. It's the most important thing there is. This is what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus is very smart. These, these, this, this little band of friends, they weren't on anybody's who's who list. But Jesus Christ knew this. If I can capture your imagination, if I can get inside of you, we can do things that no one else could ever do. Right? I mean, think about it. They died not knowing the influence, but we're here today 2,000 years later because Peter, James, and John and company, right, and Mary and, and, and company said they believed they could do some possible things, and God used them to do that, okay? The church has been placed in this community strategically, even this one, in this cultural moment to reveal God to the world. Listen, salt does not exist for itself. Christians do not exist for themselves. God has called us to be involved, engaged, to influence the world. Salt and light. Get out there. Salt that's a, you've heard this, you know, salt that's a foot away from meat doesn't do anything. We have to be in it, right? Some of you know, many of you know, that the uh, writer, pastor, author, Tim Keller, if you know him, lost his battle to pancreatic cancer. Um, if you know the name, uh, uh, just last month. Tim Keller, uh, I met him once in 2008. It was right after he published his first book called Reason for God. And that book, prior to that book publication, which he was 57 years old when he published that book, the vast majority of people outside of the pastor class never heard of Tim Keller. Now, since that time, in the last 14 or 15 years of his life, from publishing Reason for God, he's published 20 books all about the gospel, sold millions of copies. He started with D.A. Carson, the Gospel Coalition, which is an organization that does books and letters and articles and training all over the world. Some of the smartest minds, men and women, who are writing and thinking about, he started that with D.A. Carson. He started City to City which is a church planting organization that has planted hundreds of churches all over the major cities of the world in the last 15, 17 years. And, 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 and so much more. I was listening to a um, podcast with a guy named Colin Hansen who wrote a book, just came out uh, six months ago or so, about Tim's life. It's called Tim Keller his uh, spiritual and intellectual formation. And he was talking to different people, including the name John Piper, if you know it. But this is what they said, just, just reminiscing on his life. And they said, 500 years from now, this was their, their thought, 500 years from now, there may be one or two names, just like we look back and think of 
the Reformation, we think, oh, Luther, Calvin, you know, whatever the names come to mind, right? 500 years from now, one or two names will probably be known about people, you know, you know people who were thinkers and writers and pastors in, in, in the 21st century. One of those two names very likely will be the name Tim Keller. But they said, isn't it amazing, right? This is a guy who, as a bookish introvert, came to know Christ in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, who got C's in his preaching class at Westminster, who ended up going to New York City in 1989 because his small denomination, the PCA, Tim wasn't their first choice, their second choice, their third choice, their fourth choice. They went through several choices, and they ended up with Tim and Kathy Keller because nobody else wanted to go. And everybody that made this small decision, including Tim and Kathy Keller, thought it will be a a miracle if if anything good, if, if we're able to start a church that does, that lasts, okay? And look what God did in 14 years with a life that was willing to believe that the mission was worth giving their life to. People who find their worth in Jesus, here's the point, are given the gift of being of worldwide worth. What the gospel gives us, what the church can give us, if we choose to exalt Jesus in our lives and in our church. Okay? But it's not a decision that I make. The pastor. We decide we're going to do this. Right? We all need to decide. You are the church, students and adults. We need to decide. We need to put a stake in the ground, right? Are we going to just swim along with the stream of the world? Right? Many churches are doing that. Do we want to raise a bunch of moralistic, therapeutic, deism kind of thinking? It's happening all over churches in America. has been for years. Are we willing to believe that the gospel changes lives, willing to believe that the truth is, is, is powerful and that is, is, it's as powerful today as it was when Jesus spoke these words. But we have decisions to make. We have to choose to live that way and be that way. So we're going to end our service here as we do every first Sunday of the month in taking this communion. And I want to just give you a minute or two right here and you should think about the question I started this with. Church of Influence is a church where Jesus is exalted. Begins with you and me. So ask yourself as we prepare for this, okay? Are there, is Jesus Christ who he is, his words, his life, are they central in your life, right? It doesn't, it's not automatic. That's why, you know, Paul says, I encourage you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your lives as a living sacrifice. You have to decide to do that. You have to decide that Christ is the center of your marriage. You have to decide that Christ is the center of your work. You have to decide that Christ is the center of your relationships. You have to decide that you, you're going to go into your world that is the people around you who do not know Jesus as Savior, that may not even have an inkling about God that you're going to revere Christ as Lord and you're, you're, you're going to go toward them in love. And even if they're maliciously, uh, say malicious things about you, you're going to give an answer to the hope that lies within you, okay? You can't do that if Christ isn't exalted in your relationships, okay? So take just a minute 
and ask yourself where Christ needs to become more exalted in your life today. And we'll share in this communion in just a minute. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and passed it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is, will be broken for you. Let's eat together. When supper was ended, he took the cup and he passed it and said, this represents my blood that will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. God and Father, we come to you in this room today. And Lord, ask that you would do a, a, a renewal work in our hearts and our lives. That you would, Lord, set our hearts um, toward you, that you would revive us, Lord, in a manner of speaking, and help us, Lord, to revere Christ as Lord in every area of our lives. Help us, Lord, to be a church, no matter what happens outside of us, outside in our world, so to speak, that we are committed to being a church that sees that Jesus Christ is exalted and that that faith is one that we carry, Lord, um, with conviction and that we would be willing with the days we have left um, to make your mission the most important thing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.